This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, a podcast series brought to you by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. This podcast is about those little things we do in our university classroom, the little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb, and I'm joined here by my friend and colleague, Al. Hi, everyone. The series is motivated by our belief that what ultimately matters to the student experience is what happens in the classroom. In our universities, we talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, and teaching budgets, but what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about small examples of good practice that can have a big impact. And so in Higher Ed Heroes, we want to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers. Conversations about the practices that they use to bring the classroom to life and which they believe could be adopted by others to good effect. And we're aiming to have those conversations without the kind of jargon that's often associated with teaching committees in higher education. So this is a buzzword-free zone. We won't be using words like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning, or research-led teaching. And if we do hear any of those words, which we think are better suited to teaching committees, this will happen. No, no, no! And we hope the buzzer will encourage us all to talk in everyday terms and translate that jargon into discussions of the kind of practices that others can adopt. And so in today's episode, we're talking about bringing practitioners into the classroom. And we are joined by Associate Professor Cameron Purcell from the School of Social Sciences here at the University of Queensland. Cameron, welcome. Thanks, Seb. Good day. Good day, Al. Good day. Cameron, you teach a course called Creating the Future, and I know that you do a lot of different things in that course. One of the big things that you do is connecting students to practitioners in very interesting ways. Now, typically this is done by bringing in guest lecturers, but you go much further in that regard, don't you? I wonder if we could start with you giving us an example of how you bring practitioners into your classroom and do different things with them. It's funny to say that it's interesting because what I, the way I like to think about it is it just makes lots of sense and it's, um, it's a pretty obvious thing to do. What we do is bring practitioners into the classroom, not just to lecture to the students, because that often doesn't work, but we bring them into the classroom so that they can show the students, they can co-learn with the students about what happens in practice. We want practitioners to come in and help the students understand that this is the kind of work we do in the community, this is the kind of work we do in state government, and this is how we can actually integrate the literature and theories into our day-to-day work, our work in organisations, our work with people, particularly um, work with marginalised people or work with organisations that are out there trying to improve society. So we're bringing them into the classroom and we're really partnering with the students so that the students get a sense of what they'll be doing in years to come and how they can link that theoretical knowledge with practice. That's what it's all about for us, bringing them in. And you work with an NGO and you've got quite a unique form of assessment and connection with that, don't you? Yeah, so the NGO, the non-government organisation that we bring in, is a, is a large faith-based charity. And what they do is they do a lot of work with people who are, who are really experiencing deep poverty. And much of their work relies upon getting government funding. So they request, through funding applications, money from the government, and they use that government to deliver programs or provide resources to people in the society who are doing it the most tough. And this idea of 
developing a funding proposal to um, obtain money from the state, what you've got to do to pitch it, is kind of a nice theory. But we wanted to bring our our partners into the classroom and actually step-by-step go through with the students how you actually complete one of these funding proposals, why you'd want to do it, what you need to do to actually write a successful funding proposal. And it was all driven around this idea that we want to gain funding, not just to deliver a program, but we want to gain funding because we want to operate an initiative that makes a difference in people's lives. And that really inspired the students because they could really get behind this idea of a funding proposal. It wasn't just an administrative process, but it was a, a means to engage in a vision, a vision to try and obtain money to do something that they thought was useful. And, and unanimously, people in the classroom thought that community organisations going out there and working with marginalised people, not just to provide a service, but to help transform the conditions of their lives was something that they valued and wanted to be involved in. So they kind of really embraced this idea of uh, the funding proposal and how they might go about writing one in the class, always with the thought of how they might go about writing one when they left the university and were employed. Be that employed in an organisation where they're writing themselves, but also in organisations where they were assessing funding proposals. So it was a really hands-on workshop with our non-government organisation partner. How does that then work? Do they come into the lecture space, in a seminar space, the people from the NGO working with the students? And how does that working really take place? Good question, Seb. It's, it's a relatively small class and it's set up as a seminar. So we we're all sitting in tables together and we've got a computer and a screen. So we're actually writing the funding proposal together. And we, we kind of do a little bit of going through the theory of why we want to do it, what we need to do. We need, we need to be compelling and we need to be concise and we need to present an argument for, for the social value. But we actually sit there and go, okay, what are the components of a funding proposal? And we um, learn about that from what we've read, but also from what the NGO partner tells us. And then we write it. And we all decide on, well, what is the problem we want to address? So we have to develop a problem statement. Okay, well, fair enough. That's the problem. What's your vision? So we'll come up with a vision. This is what we want to achieve. Okay, so we have to articulate that. And then we kind of go, right, easy to identify a problem. Anyone can do that. A vision, it's a bit harder, but we can all do that. What do we want to do about it in practice? How do we want to link this vision to the problem? And that's where we come up with our plan. So we actually sit there and together collaborate. We're discussing it. We're debating it. Often a lot of vigorous debate about what we need to do because there are a lot of competing views. And what I like most of all is that we actually deeply engage in those competing views because then it enables us to think about our values. You know, what is it that um, is driving us to think that we should give more money to people or we should give more housing to people or we should enable people to have the conditions where they can buy their own food. And then we kind of really grapple with these kind of values because these values are implicit in how we learn. Uh, so the, the, the kind of the process of writing this plan, our vision, a really nice means to kind of reflect upon what's driving us to think in the way that we do. And, and this, this type of debate actually really engages and invigorates the students. And, and, and I've got to say, it really does me too. I, I find this exciting and I'm struck by how much I learn from the students, particularly students who actually are coming from this, coming to this from a perspective of not having read an awful lot about it or thought an awful lot about it before. Often the ideas that they bring um, engaged in this collaborative process with the NGO partner are, are very exciting. Often they're dangerous and they challenge people and that's what I like. And what does the partner bring in? Obviously you, throughout this course, you engage with a lot of people through who you've made contact with through your own research. 
does the partner then come in and then work with them in terms of, okay, we're an NGO, this is the kind of things that you need to have in these funding applications? Yeah, absolutely. So the partner explains all of the work they've done and, and the students can appreciate this. Okay, this partner's written 20 funding proposals this year and 10 of them got funded. But then the partner really tries to reflect upon, well, what was it about the successful ones? What were the characteristics of them that enabled them to get funding? And what was it about the ones that didn't get funding? And this is where we can kind of tie the kind of excitement and the values that are driving us together with the practicalities. How can we articulate very, very clearly, how can we articulate our values and what's motivating us to achieve this kind of social end? How can we articulate this to someone who might not share the same philosophy or religion or culture to us? So it really is an active process of reflection and then also communication. And the the partner takes us through not just the grants that they've written that have been funded, but also the ones that haven't been funded. And we also engage with the feedback that they're often, that he's received from the unfunded ones. And we can kind of uh, reflect upon what funders like and what they don't like. What are the, the buzzwords that annoy people? But what are, what, are the, what are the attributes of these grants that inspire people and um, lead them to being funded? And this is, again, it, you can really see the students being pushed, but also in a way that they're driving this. They kind of really want to engage. And, and invariably, these classes go longer than what they're meant to because the partners have so much to give and they really engage with the students because rarely are there, you know, is there an audience who are so keen to understand how you write a funding proposal, for example, because we're not seeing it as a, a technical administrative exercise, but we're seeing it as a way of enacting a vision in the world. I'm going to ask a question and then buzz myself. The, the <laughs> nice, question, I like that. what I'm hearing is that this is going much further beyond transferable skills. No. So what you're actually doing is you're through the process, the practical process, you're getting to deeper issues, bigger issues about power, about agency, about mm. these these other things that are ostensible in yeah. the funding application. That's right. And, and often in social science or humanities degrees, we, we learn about power and the oppressive power and where it's held. But in these classes, in these workshops, we're trying to learn about how we can actually activate and intervene within that power, how we can work within the constraints of power but be successful, how we can obtain funding from the government to actually implement, in theory, interventions or programs that subvert the government's power. So we're actually trying to give the students a sense that they have agency, that they can actually, if not radically subvert the power, certainly work within the constraints of the power to successfully achieve something. And of course, we can read about Marx and other critical theorists, but it's when we get down to trying to write a funding proposal, when we're conscious of that power, that we really begin to appreciate power dynamics and agency on a different, uh, more visceral level. Is visceral a buzzword or am I okay with that? I think you're safe on visceral. Okay. I think so too. I quite like yeah, it. Yeah. We, yeah, we're fine on that. <laughs> but you know, like when, when you talk in a slightly more abstract terms about power and agency, I mean, that kind of makes me think about how what you do bringing the, cl- uh, the practitioner into the classroom sits with the way you assess students in your course. I mean, are you assessing them on that particular funding proposal exercise or is it more having them reflect along similar lines that you just mentioned, power agency? Mm. We actually, the first assessment that we did in the class was we asked the students, or we didn't ask them, we made them, <laughs> we made them write a funding proposal of their own. And this was fantastic because we 
again, we weren't necessarily measuring or testing the the technical components of the application, but we were really interested in the way that students could see a social problem, but see it from a different perspective. And then we wanted them to reflect upon that perspective. And then we wanted them to articulate a vision that was different. And a vision is really important, but we wanted them to then go back to, okay, what's underpinning my vision here? Is it I've got this egalitarian view? Or have I got an individual view? Have I got a, a collectivist view? And we wanted them to make sense of that and own that and understand how their position drives the kind of vision that they have. So it's this process of the doing, but then reflecting on the doing. And, and what we like about this is it wasn't in the abstract terms, but they had to write the vision. They had to own it. And then we invited them to reflect upon what that meant. What does that represent for how you think? And how can we tie this to certain types of theory of power or agency or ethics or moral philosophy? You know, how, does it, how, how can we link these in? And when we start by, by the students' own experiences and their vision, then it's really easy for them to engage, or it's much easier for them to engage in this kind of theory because it's, it's real. They can kind of they can draw a straight line between what they're thinking, what they've written, and these kind of what many people perceive, including myself, abstract theorists. And one of the other things that you do in terms of, if you like, opening students' eyes to the real world is take them out of the classroom, don't you? I wondered if you could give us a, an example of getting students away from campus mm. and, and still exposing them to those big themes. When you get through the university administrative processes of taking students off campus, it's actually one of the it's one of the real treats of teaching, and it's one of the real treats. In this class, we went out to a, a homeless shelter. We also went out to a, a big building in in the city, which is a permanent supportive housing building. What we wanted to do was go out and see where charities, where social service providers, where governments have invested money to try and address poverty. And they've built places, they've operated services, they've developed initiatives, and we wanted to see what's happening in practice. And we had the, well, we were lucky in one place, the permanent supportive housing, we had the chief executive officer and the senior support worker spend a couple of hours in the permanent supportive housing, giving us a tour, showing us the building where people live inside the apartments, the concierge, the support services. So we really linked it back to the class. Okay, here are these theories we have on ethics, what we value. Okay, here's this building. What does this say about what the state values? Here are these workers who are trying to help people overcome chronic addiction. What are our values here? What does this say? We also went to a shelter. A shelter is a kind of a something from the olden days, really. It's, in many cases, big rooms with bunk beds on it for single, mostly men who are homeless. They're quite controlled environments. They're workers there managing when you come in and out, what, what you can eat, what you can say, whether you can drink, what you can bring, how much you pay. It's a very controlled, olden-day environment. And this was amazing. The students were confronted with a place that, on the surface, looked very different to how they wanted to understand and appreciate the society we lived in. But then when we unpacked it a little bit more deeply, when we spent time there with the workers, with the staff on the ground they started to understand that there was a lot more going on than just this controlled environment where people were homeless or warehoused. They understood that there was a very, very complex history experienced by many of the single men or the single women who were living there. They were understanding about deep deprivation. They were understanding people's experiences of violence, people's experiences of exclusion and racism. 
But at the same time, and you can't help it when you go to a place like this, they're also understanding hope, they're understanding optimism. And not just as a theoretical sense, they were observing in practice welfare workers, volunteers, social workers, actively intervening to try and achieve a more optimistic world for people who are marginalised. And this was... I don't want to go to extremes, but it certainly was a something of a life-changing experience for the students. Many of the students had never experienced this kind of deprivation before, certainly not on display in a, a, a shelter. And to understand that it wasn't as, as simple as an olden-day shelter full of poverty, but it was also full of profoundly skilled and inspired young professionals trying to do things differently and people who had experienced marginalisation doing everything they could despite structural barriers to overcome their deprivation. I think it was a really life-changing experience for the students to see how this can happen. And again, it was always through this frame of what can we do different? How can we, as a society, as individuals within a society, do something to address the injustices we see? Again, it's very, very easy to look at a, a problem and become fatalistic or melancholy about it and then to write about that problem. It's much harder to think about how we can do something differently. And, and this was uh, an experience of taking students out of the classroom into the homeless shelter, for example, or into the supportive housing and get them to witness firsthand in a day-to-day perspective how people are doing things differently and then for them to put themselves in that frame and wonder what they might do, what they might do differently, what they liked most of all. And then again, okay, so what does that mean when I'm confronted by that practice? Or what does it mean when I'm inspired by that? What does that say about my position? We've talked about two examples now, right? Once you bring the outside real world in to write funding proposals, then you take the class outside into the real world to look at a shelter and various ways in which social workers might address or might how societies through social workers might address certain kind of issues like poverty, for example. But it seems that what drives this is this kind of to generate that, I wouldn't say friction, but this kind of confrontation. Is that sort of something that underpins your idea and philosophy of teaching, that kind of confrontation of the rather abstract ivory tower type of ways of thinking and approaching the world with the real world out there? And if so, what is it that for you is the most important thing that you get out of it in terms of I, I like that idea of a confrontation, Seb. I think that's really cool. And what the class is trying to do, it's not assuming that the real world is real and the theoretical or abstract is unreal. It's trying to say that they're both real, but we just need to put them alongside each other. We need to put them in dialogue with each other. What does the real world, what does poverty in a shelter tell us about our day-to-day experience in the world? But also, what does it tell us about our existing theories? And similarly, when we're engaging deeply in books, because I think we ought to do that too, when we're engaging deeply in theory, well, how does this make sense from what I saw in the real world? So neither is more or less real than the other, but we always, beautifully, as you said it, Seb, need to confront the two together and have them in conversation with each other, have them in dialogue. And that dialogue inevitably, what I hope, inevitably demonstrates that the world is far more complex than what we might think And there are a lot of nuance and subtleties going on. And I think the engagement with the partnership between the students and the practitioners, be it in the class or out, is a mechanism for students to understand that complexity. Cameron's not just an amazing teacher, he's also an amazing researcher as well. And in the research world, we're always told to think about impact. 
But what I've heard from Cameron today is impact in terms of teaching, which is quite something. So thank you for that. Thanks so much for joining us, um, Cameron, of course. Uh, thanks so much for you guys listening in. If this is something that triggered some fascination in you, where you might have some ideas or suggestions, where you might want to get in contact with Cameron or with us about exchanging ideas, you can obviously link into our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram accounts, or you can find us just by searching Higher Ed Heroes podcast. Thanks for joining us on Higher Ed Heroes, and we look forward to your company next time. Bye.